Welcome back to Walking Away from Arcadia. Today, I'm here with my co-host, Simon Eichhörnchen, and we're going to be going off our current format beaten path to talk about the Mind's Eye Theater release of Changeling the Dreaming. We currently have the most recent released copy, which at time of recording is the same copy that dropped on release day. As I understand it, they are gathering errata and are probably at some point going to go through and do the kind of incidental cleanup that we see get done a lot with these books. But I don't think Simon and I are going to get into the level of detail that would be impacted by errata fixes. For anyone who has listened to the previous Mind's Eye Theater episodes, you'll know Simon and I are not LARPers. Simon has never LARPed. I have LARPed a very little bit. I have LARPed the alpha version of this system, but I didn't LARP the beta version. And this is, you know, as you'll see, changed quite a bit even from the beta version. So we're going to be reviewing the thematic stuff, the Changeling Universe stuff, a few of the things that, while maybe LARP-specific, could work in any Changeling game. We're not going to get into the systems or mechanics because we are not the people to review that stuff. We're going to dive in and see what we think about this pretty substantial addition to Changeling the Dreaming. Simon, what were your initial thoughts of this book? What's your feeling on it overall? This is a beautiful book. The art is very interesting to me. And the first two-ish chapters of this book have a level of polish I wasn't really expecting. This book goes out of its way to differentiate itself from other dreaming products by differentiating the tone. They have a, a very brief discussion about what their aesthetic is, and they mention that their aesthetic is dark realism. And Victor and I were talking before we started recording about what we thought other parts of dreaming like acted like or thought their aesthetic was. I think people might disagree sometimes, but generally, like at the table, I feel like dreaming tends to have an urban fantasy type feel, even though it says it's aiming for more World of Darkness standard. We're doing goth punk stuff here. I don't think they ever really succeeded in dreaming and getting to anything that was particularly punky or gothy. What what did you think about that? I agree. I think this concept of dark realism relates really closely with the art. I will say a lot of the art isn't terribly dark as compared to the werewolf books or the vampire books that Mind's Eye Theater has released. But it does feel a lot more like magic realism. It does feel a lot more like it exists in this moment, this time and place, which can also be urban fantasy, but it's something that I never really got that vibe from Changeling art until C20. And when I say C20, I mean like the core book and the ready-made characters and a little bit Book of Freeholds has some art and feel that is very much in this time, in this place, you know, the MIT gardens right up in the Freeholds book, or Soccer Mom Troll kind of has that vibe. 
But even those books also have a lot of high fantasy feel to them that's just like embedded in the here and now. I never felt like that person that has all the tattoos and the punk hair and the piercings and the leather jacket, that like aesthetic that you get from vampire, but like full fairy I can only think of a couple examples, like the sex kitten piece in the Puka book is there, but then we'll have whole other books that were just like high fantasy all the way down. All of the books of houses. By comparison, I really felt like the art and the tone of this book was very much more of our place and our time, and every character that I looked at, I knew they lived in the here and now, which... The primary, you know, setting story shift, which we'll get into a little bit more later, is all about the long winter finally hitting and being cut off somewhat from dreaming and glamour again. So that fits. That makes sense. I really liked that. I like the theme and the tone that they aim for, and I really like the art and the aesthetic. I totally agree with that. Other dreaming products edge up to and sometimes hit that magic realism note for me. My go to everybody's sick of hearing me talk about it example of changeling art that hits that for me is the slua in the tire in the junkyard piece that's in the old player's guide yes that one's amazing and you're right the sex kitten one gets there too it kind of squicks me out but it works perfectly the intro section of this book and the history section of this book both do really good jobs of doing what they set out to do i'm going to try to avoid reading directly from this book for the most part but The very short section on the aesthetic of dark realism has a line in it that does a really good job of getting at what they want the core of this game to be, and I'm just going to read it. Dark realism, told through the lens of changing the dreaming, is the aesthetic of hope in the face of annihilation. Regardless of whether or not they successfully achieve this goal, this is the goal that I always want from Changeling, so good on them for that yeah and i don't know about perfectly achieving this goal but i will say one thing i didn't find a lot of in this book was the rampant othering nightmare which i i just i know dreaming has some of it i know some people absolutely love it it is not an area of changeling i enjoy when i pull out a thelane or an adhene they are very much a metaphor for some human thing I'm talking about in my story. And I mean, okay, it's it's fantasy setting. We need some metaphors for that. But I feel like Changeling drifts into just like the mythic predestined horror being the thing it not being something on top of the real point. And whenever there isn't an actual thing underneath it and it's just like, oh, the Fomorians are scary. I am lost. You, I'm gone. We're done. And I never got that feeling from this book. Similar to Simon, I haven't read it cover to cover because I was kind of trying to avoid all the LARP stuff that I couldn't really speak to for the purposes of this record. But what I read, I really did try to consume as much of the flavor stuff as I could, avoided that pitfall, and it made me very happy. Just some high-level what-you-should-expect-from-this-book stuff. I think the dark realism thing is a useful informer for the tone. You can expect this book to be trying to reach. Obviously, it's a LARP book, so that's something you should expect from this. 
if you need a really good like defense or intro or primer on what LARPing is for, on what role-playing games are for, and what the idea of dreaming is, the first couple of chapters of this book do that really well. Due to real-world constraints, you should also know that this book doesn't cover the inanime, it doesn't cover the nunahi, it doesn't cover the sien, at least not in a player context. We can talk about that, but just setting expectations, those things aren't in this book. Yeah, and for anyone who followed the alpha and beta, the inanime were present as a player option in the beta, and they're not available in this book. They are present in the NPC write-up. And I think it was just to streamline down and create a more controllable set of variables for someone who is picking this game up and trying to do it for the first time because the inanime write-up, we talked about this a little bit in our beta review, it was a little weird. They tried to pull the alien out of the inanime a bit to make them more approachable, but they still weren't in human bodies. They just, they had to change them a lot. I did like the story they wrote for them. I thought it was very compelling. I still actually think the beta write-up for the inanime gives a better history than we've ever had for the inanime. But I do understand how it was probably just seen as too much to really, like, get to the right quality level along with everything else. So I, I'm i sad to see them go, but I think it was probably the right design choice. And just knowing the resources available, I'm honestly glad the Nunya here just name-dropped a couple times because that's a group that I don't want written up unless they're written up properly. And I know that was the concern from a couple of the people working on the book just from talking to them. So again, I think that was probably the right choice. So the Dreaming LARPs, I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the Dreaming LARPs have always been kind of an alternate parallel canon thing to the tabletop history. And this one really, it's interesting to me that it takes that approach because it does diverge from the tabletop in the C20 era of the history, the more recent like current events stuff. But I felt like it was a pretty good, although dry, write-up of the story to this point. And I'd be interested to know what, what you thought. Yeah, so the Mind's Eye Theater products have always done an alternate universe thing. My understanding from Vampire is that Vampire was pretty true to the canon in terms of its history history. It's not like it rewrote Carthage or any of that stuff. But there was a particular point in time where they just deviated so they could introduce story and narrative that lent itself to a LARP format. And that is very much what Changeling the Dreaming does as well. What I wasn't prepared for going into the history section was for it to be more faithful to the canon than any other Changeling book I'd ever read. And it absolutely is. I'm used to every Changeling book that deals with the history you know, hitting a few of the markers the same way, like we're going to copy pasta what the shattering was, we're going to copy pasta what the mythic age was, but all of the aesthetic details that represent that are going to be what I want to write. I mean, that's just what I'm used to reading changeling books. They all 
have to have their own very special imprint. This was not that. This was, okay, you've never heard of Changeling before. You're walking into a LARP for the first time. What is this thing all about? Bam, here is the Reader's Digest condensed version of the canon, and no, really, we researched it. They somehow got High King Balor and the Red King into the same history. They put them in a place relative to each other that makes sense. In listening to our, our Metaplot episodes, one thing you'll notice is there are books that deal with Balor, and then there are books that are like, screw normal mythology, the white, green, and red courts of the Fomorians, and like, those two things never cross, and this brought them together in a way that actually made sense. They happen at different periods in the history. They frame it really well. They drop all these little tidbits about the creation stories of several of the house founders and these major events that happened in the canon that I'm very used to being treated as like isolated things you only care about if you're reading Leonin, or you only care about if Dougal is central to your story, and we're never going to put them anywhere central to the game. And then this puts all those things central to the game. My one critique of the history section is I get a feeling it was written last or close to last, and it didn't get as much of a development editing pass, because while I love how researched it feels, I love that it brings the whole meta together, the word craft is a little awkward like a lot. There are quite a few sentences where I just went, this needs copy editing. Like, what's happening? And I didn't get that feeling anywhere else in the book. That said, right up to the point where the long winter hits, I would actually say if there's someone who's a new Changeling player and you want them to read the history of Changeling, I would give them this book before any other single text from the tabletop line. All copy editing needs aside. Yeah, I think this is a totally adequate primer, I guess, for the Dreaming history to date. My two big quibbles, I mean, really they're not problems, they're quibbles, are kind of like yours. When I was reading this, at first I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting, and then it got repetitive, and then I realized it read like a middle school history textbook. It was date- Three lines describing what happened. Date, three lines describing what happened. Date, three lines describing what happened. I'm not exactly sure how to get around that with this little space to cover this much material and to tie this many weird, don't-really-go-together loose threads together, but it kind of bumped into my philosophical objections to the way history is taught <laughs> in public schools. It's just kind of bland. The other thing I... I think I noticed it doing, I might be wrong on this, but the other thing I think I noticed it doing was in tying up some of those loose ends, a couple of new loose ends were introduced that kind of fall into a category of problems I've had with the part of this text I've managed to finish so far, where they introduced an interesting idea that it doesn't seem like they thought through all the implications of that idea. One of my notes here is that in their section talking about the Resurgence War, they mention that the Shi pulled War Chimera from the Deep Dreaming, which, okay, I think this is the first I've heard of that. I might be forgetting something. But apparently this is something the Shi could do during the Resurgence, and it doesn't come up again 
during the part where they're talking about um, the Adheen coming back, which is just kind of like, well, is this just a thing that she could have done at one point specifically? Like, how come the resurgent she can do this, but the resurgent Adheen can't? There's just a couple of things like that where a, a slightly more careful eye needed to look at that and write a couple of question marks in the margin, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. I also think that uh, speaks to my theory. I don't know this for certain, but that this was probably one of the last things written. One thing we didn't talk about at the beginning, for anyone who doesn't already know about this book, hasn't seen it announced, it's a storyteller's vault text. And I feel comfortable sharing this now. When the beta came out, we got an early release copy of the beta of this. We recorded our whole review episode, and then we didn't release it for like half a year because we were asked not to release our episode before the book came out, and the beta didn't come out until like six months after it was done because there were some reorganizations, and at that point, By Night Studios was no longer allowed to physically publish books. I've had a number of people tell me that who were involved in this, and you know, the one thing that I concretely know is that gap between when we got this book and when they were able to release it by the time they released it they were like we're on the storyteller's vault now the company completely sort of dissolved and was reformed between the beta and this there are some sections of this book that have a very long development history and some sections of this book that are newer and had to be written with the resources that go along with not physically printing a book i kind of chalk some of those things, the, oh, people didn't think through all the implications of this, not the last idea in those lines you'll hear us talk about. I think some of that is the result of that dynamic. We got to finish this thing. We got to get it out. We can only lose so much money because it's going on the storyteller's fault. And let's be honest about what that means. I think there are some resource constraints at play there. There was one thing in the history section. I talked about how true it was to the canon. There was one Huge diversion that jumped out at me. I have always seen the Sundering presented as roughly-ish around the fall of Rome. The fall of Rome was not a short process, which goes along with the fact that the Sundering is described as taking centuries. But it starts when Rome started to fall. When I was thinking about this, I looked up when Constantine died, and that whole becoming a Christian on his deathbed and what does the rise of Christianity represent to changelings? And it's off by a century or so, but like, again, the Sundering is mushy. So there's a whole interesting story there about, ooh, was that part of, you know, the shift? And they placed the Sundering in like 500 BCE. I have never seen the Sundering with a BC anything in front of the like guest date. I read over it a couple times. It's very clearly meant to be BCE. That surprised me a little bit. That's really the only thing in the history section that jumped out at me is a major diversion from the canon as I know it. So just something to be aware of when thinking about how much of this to share if you did want to use this for a tabletop game and wanted your characters to sort of give themselves a remembrance like history that deals with the Sundering. So that brings us to the character creation section, which includes the kith narratives and just kind of like a, a high level look at these i kind of feel like they had a difficult task here because on the one hand 
you're dealing with something that's roughly 20 years old, there are only so many ways to restate things. So if they're not making substantial changes to a kith, then it's kind of boring. And if they are making substantial changes to a kith, then you have to deal with assholes like me who hate change and are going to dislike it just on principle. So I feel like this section of the book in particular was probably kind of fraught for them. There wasn't really a way to win. The layout here, I don't quite get what happened because it seemed a little bit messier than the rest of the book. They didn't do solid page breaks between the kith sections, which maybe I'm being picky. That would have helped me. Otherwise, each of the kiths is broken down into a history, modern knights, where they fit in, and unlike the tabletop game, there are five seemings, and Victor can correct me if I'm wrong here, but the seemings are really just place markers for how much XP your character has. Not exactly. There's an actual background for seeming, and I'd have to look at how you work through it. With Vampire, which was the first game released on this umbrella system, they had generation, or it wasn't even quite generation, it was your age. They tried to get away from a firm thing that was unmovable for the overall power stat, and this takes that place in terms of the rough systematic structure. So you could, in theory, stay an errant for a very long time and accumulate experience without ever moving out of kind of that phase of, of the way you engage with the world. It's more about your age and narrative experience and the role you play. Like, you can have a starting character that's one of the later classes here but you have to pay for it as a background point and it impacts like your main power stat and how quickly you can advance things so it's not exactly an experience stand-in but i get why you would think that so there's that and there's also a narrative difficulty with the seemings when you get into the specific kits because they mean different things in different kits Knocker was a, a particular standout for me because they just called it out as your expertise with your craft, which is completely different from the way other kiths describe their seeming states. I think they stretched the system so far it broke there, but maybe I just don't understand LARP enough. Then they also have courts. They got rid of legacies, which is probably a good call for LARP. Uh, your court choices are Seely, Unseely, and Shadow, and they go through what that means for each kith and kind of a rough census of who's in which court. They go through your character's caste, the optional secret societies they might be members of based on their kith. Did I miss anything there? That pretty much covers it. There's also a little bit at the very end that's more crunchy systemy stuff. Just for people who are picking this up, thinking, oh, maybe I'll have ideas I can use. You do end up with art affinities, sort of like your clan disciplines, and you end up with a realm. The realms are very, very different in the system, so it's actually a realm you get automatically and can use, as opposed to, like, the affinity lower difficulty thing in tabletop. And then 
there isn't a birthright. You don't get birthrights the same way you do in tabletop. So if you pick this up and you want to look at that for like thematic inspiration, just be prepared for the systematic stuff to be so different from tabletop that I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about it for those purposes. But if you do actually want to make a LARP character and you're expecting kind of that template you're used to in tabletop, just expect it to be a little different. With the kiths, we are mostly going to be talking about the kiths that are substantially different than they are in tabletop. I guess maybe we could start out at a high level with how we felt about the kiths that didn't change much. I would say the Boggins, the Redcaps, the She, the Satyrs, the Ishu, and the Trolls didn't really change very much. Whereas the Piskies, the Puka, the Clurikin changed a lot. You know, we might dive in a little bit on a couple of the kiths that are mostly unchanged, because there were a few things that definitely stood out to us. Broadly, I would say for the kiths that didn't change that much, Simon kind of makes a valid point that you can only restate things that were stated in previous books in so many interesting ways. And I did run into a little bit of just struggling with that because I've read so many versions of this before. But that said, you get a lot of write-up on these kits, much more than in the two-page splats from the tabletop games. They're little mini kith books, really. So if I take a look at Boggan as an example, that's the first one. It's four and a half pages of content. That's a fair bit, so maybe Mini Kith Book is a little bit of a stretch, but there's a lot here. I think overall, if you're coming into the game and you're just interested in what are the most recent thoughts on the splats, I don't think they'd be a bad read. I think it's tough if you've read these write-ups over and over and over again, but I think they're pretty well put together. At a high level structurally what was your feeling on the kiss that were pretty unchanged taking the the kiss as a whole here i found myself thinking that like with the old larp book the shining host i have actually given that book to new players and been like this is much easier to read to get an idea of what the kiths are about and it's accurate to the tabletop version so just read this i'll help you with the mechanical stuff later but this will give you a feel for what you're interested in this book, it's kind of occupying a weird middle territory where the length makes it less approachable than Shining Host was with this stuff. And the changes to the kits that are changed make it less useful in that respect. I don't think that was ever part of the mission statement for them, so it's not like I'm not trying to be critical here. But this is the way I've used these books in the past, and I can't use this book that way. I don't think it was intended to be used that way, but I'm not going to be able to. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the one area this book ends up potentially very useful in tabletop is if you just want some different ideas. As an example, the Clurican have two previous manifestations in Changeling. There was their original write-up, which was very true to the actual Clurican myth. And the actual Clurican myth is belligerently drunk leprechaun of wine cellars, 
which is an authentic myth and also really problematic for many, many reasons. Drunk Irishmen as a stereotype is a thing that they decided they didn't want to perpetuate. To deal with that in C20, they replaced that stereotype with let's just steal Mad Sweeney from American gods. I don't know that that's the best solution. I don't hate them. They're fun to play, but they're not the most dynamic thing I've ever seen. The Clorican and this are totally different. And if you wanted, as a storyteller, to dive in and make some strategic choices about, oh, hey, I'd really like a character like this, I can just use the systems from C20, maybe get get rid of that you and you fight birthright <laughs> that we have, and build this concept. I think there's some value there. I do agree with Simon. I couldn't just hand this book to a player and say, hey, read this. It'll give you a good primer. The one area that this format could have worked for that is if I had a new player and they were like, hey, I'm kind of interested in this thing. I don't want to read the whole Kith book. I don't have time. I could give them one of these four or five page write-ups and it would be more complete. But again, it's so different in a lot of cases that that's a little difficult to navigate. The other problem I ran into with some of the kits that didn't change very much, with the write-up goal being to include as much information as they possibly could, they included some information they should not have. Knocker is the standout example of that, because in the Knocker write-up, they mentioned that the Knockers are organized under the Beth Din, which is a Jewish thing, and it's from Kithbook Knocker, which is a book most people don't like, and a lot of people haven't read. This introduces a racism problem into Knockers, because it's taking these underground goblin creatures and saying, hey dudes, they're Jewish, when nothing else about them is Jewish other than having some nasty stereotype appearance issues. That level of fidelity to the canon isn't helpful, I don't think. Yeah, and I have to admit, it's it's just a line. This was something I missed. I didn't catch this when I was reading them. It's something Simon pointed out to me, and I went back and I, I saw it. It's there. I do agree there were a couple places I wish they had been a little bit more willing to deviate in places where they were consistent. The one other area that I kind of felt that way about was the issue. The issue as a concept, and if you go back and listen to our first interview with the original writers and developer for the Alpha Slice, uh, the topic of the issue came up and you know there was a comment about how the issue aren't just you know an ethnic fairy, they are the storyteller who comes swirling in you know, to your scene out of nowhere. And I I agree that that mold of the storyteller is important. The bards of Ireland who would be on the battlefield, they would be at war and so they could tell the stories and sing the stories and be this creative manifestation of history. There's a great novel called The Bard all about the invasion of the Malaysians and the ousting of the Tuaha through the vision of one of those characters, one of those bards. And there's an amazing place for that, but the game has always treated them as, you know, the dreams of the Middle East, India, and Africa. I think maybe that line doesn't appear in here. It appeared in the beta. I didn't see it in here. I may have missed it. 
you know, Ishu opens by trying to make this, oh, hey, all kinds of cultures have this. But then the entire write-up is, Elegbara, we have different words that are very clearly not European for all of these things. We have no connection to the she whatsoever, and how dare they, you know, these others tell us we have to serve them. Which, if you're telling the story of travelers from another country, okay. But they, like, start out with this mission statement, and then they stay true to the canon. And it's it's interesting, just, like, the places I wish they hadn't. Those were really the two areas where that happened, and I wish they deviated more than they did. I don't know. What what were your feelings about that, Simon? It's it's hard to to have a feeling about that in isolation for me, because this is paired with some pretty radical changes to some of the other kiths. So obviously they weren't afraid of making really big changes. You know, it's a LARP, not a tabletop game, so different medium, different things work, different things don't work, sometimes change is necessary. It's just, I don't know why some of those massive changes were made when very little changes, like omitting one line, would have avoided a reasonably large problem. I don't want to ascribe motive to that sort of a thing, because it could be a mistake. Like, I mean, this book has had a tortured development history. (laughs) But at the same time, I I guess it's the ongoing problem of tabletop games and LARP in general. Is like, could we please be just a little bit less white, a little bit more sensitive when it matters, you know? I, I think that's an ongoing problem. I can definitely see evidence of trying to do better on some of those fronts here and areas where it didn't happen. It's definitely there in the issue. Like You can tell they were trying to untie that knot, and then they just didn't finish untying it. I'm not totally surprised by the one line in the knocker write-up. I legitimately didn't remember reading it. I might have that might have been an area I was perusing as opposed to reading <laughs> line for line because that did happen a little bit with the kiss that didn't change that much for me and the knockers were one of those they're they're the knockers we've always known and loved especially because that is a, more of an anti-semitic issue there's a long history there of just people not being cognitively aware of that it's weirdly invisible becoming less so because of the internet and people being more aware of those tropes but Similarly, I wouldn't necessarily want to ascribe intent there, but intent doesn't equal impact. I mean... The thing that gets me about that one specifically is just that it's an obscure line from an obscure book, and it just would have been so easy to not... Just do the do the standard white wolf thing where it's like, hey, we had this one book that was actually quite bad, and... We're going to turn that into, like, this is what people think about Clan Ravnos. Here's the way Clan Ravnos really is. And, like, if you want to use that other thing, I guess you can. But do you really want (laughs) to, you know? So we've talked about a couple of the little things that niggled at us. But I think I'd like to move on and talk about a couple of the kits that are just a total rewrite. And two of them sort of come as a pair for me, to be honest. Simon might disagree with this. The Puka and the Piskies. The Puka were rewritten to basically get rid of their 
always lying, super trickster, tee-hee, troublesome, childling mode. I'll share a little bit. I was in the, the brain trust. And when I first read that, I got into a conversation about like, do they really need to be rewritten this much? Like, huh? And a bunch of people shared stories with me of LARP experiences from the Shining Host days where people just walked in and they played the puka as permission for bad behavior. I got it. I've now heard enough stories about the puka in LARP that I totally get why they wanted to tone that down. And so they changed the puka to be all about fate and oracle. Basically, they wrote it up as that period from the shattering until the long winter hit. They knew things were going so horribly that they kind of hid from it and became silly tricksters as a coping mechanism. Ha ha, but it's a lie. And that really kind of actually lines up with their kith book and the we ate ourselves in the dreaming and no actually our existence is pain. So I'm okay with that. And then they have in the long winter, they come out of that and like, they're not that anymore. The seeing a thousand lines of fate, knowing all the places the future could legitimately go, but not knowing exactly which of these corridors we're going down is kind of their poor experience. It's very Muad'Dib, it's very Quetzalcaterok, it's very Dune Messiah. I, I still, I understand the change. I still don't know how I feel about it. I love the puka, and not for being silly tricksters, but for like the lying tragedy they were before. Like our life is tragedy, and this haha is the lie. It is our frailty. I dig that. Almost no one plays them that way, though. So, yeah, I gotta that see those, that. <laughs> that was one of those things where, like, I really dig that, but at the same time, it's a major flaw in a game that's as uh, rigid as Dreaming tends to be, to have that be a class trait. That frailty probably should have been a flaw anybody can take and then maybe throw in another flaw that's the exact opposite where like you can't say anything that's a lie let people throw that on top of their character because in the mythology there are tons of people who have that both of those problems <laughs> liberate the shapeshifters from being trapped in this place that's very difficult for a lot of people to get into what did you think about the weird cassandra i know the future but i don't pitch I played a Malkavian. I don't find it super thrilling. That's, I mean, that's kind of a fair take on that. So then that, that kind of leads into the Piskies. The reason I say the Piskies and the Puka are a pair is they wrote Ha Ha Trickster out of the Puka as hard as they possibly could to get rid of this bad behavior. And then late in the development cycle, they were not there in the beta, they were added, I believe after the whole company turnover happened. They added the Piskies in, and beyond the cosmological bent they take with the Piskies, which I'm sure we'll get to in a couple minutes, their opening couple paragraphs is, yay, we're the tricksters, haha. They're just described as huge troublemakers. And it's funny because Pisky and Puka, and this section is alphabetized, so they appear right next to each other in the book, and it's really hard not to look at that and be like, wait, we wrote this out of the game because terrible players, and then we wrote it back into the game. Why? And I don't have a good answer for that. I have absolutely no insight into this whatsoever. It's 
like you said, like, okay, so we're getting rid of this excuse for people to be awful. Cool. I'm sad that that happened, but people are people and you have to deal with reality. Cool. Maybe that design objective got lost during the reorganization. You're absolutely right. The Piskies are written as somewhere between nasty troublemakers and fun troublemakers, depending on a, a couple of things, including the court. But also their genesis is... Well, the note I wrote for that was, this is an interesting idea, I don't get why it's a pisky. Their genesis roughly breaks down to whoever wrote this has never written a loop in a computer program. They are a huge hanging recursive narrative problem. The pisky genesis is they take the place of the tithed, and we've mentioned the tithed in a couple episodes. The tithed are... The souls of humans that were ousted, depending on the book you read, either by the she when they body snatch or by any changeling when they go through the changeling way. I'll be transparent. I prefer the body snatch only interpretation of that, but okay. In this, the Piskies are that human soul needs somewhere to go when a changeling goes through the changeling way. It is described as Anytime a changeling goes through the changeling way, and so they make it a big metaplot thing that the Piskies came into existence after the shattering, because there was this rush of the changeling way. Okay, that's an interesting story that I guess you can deal with. I was reading and I was reading and I'm like, but wait, these are PCs, they're in human bodies. How does that work? How do they get there? Are they... Is it a whole changeling that's created? And then there's just like one sentence that's like, yeah, they go through the changeling way just like everyone else, and then they just get reincarnated. And I, I read that and I went, recursion is a thing, kids. Close your loop. And I kept waiting for them to close the loop, and it's just one long stack overflow failure. And they yeah. never close that loop and explain that, or even make it an unexplained thing that the in-universe people are like, why does this work? It's it's so weird. Right, and they like kind of edge up to it a couple of times. I remember in their, their court fealties section, they mention that there are almost no, maybe no, shadow court piskies because piskies in the shadow court are just oppositional forces and the shadow court doesn't even think they're changelings. I, I kept turning this over in my head and I was like, how does this work? Like... So a she kicks a human out of the body during the, the shattering because they got stuck behind, and then a Pisky's created, and then the Pisky kicks a human out of the body to survive, which creates a Pisky, which kicks a human out of a body, and it reminds me of like that line, you know, it's turtles all the way down. Like at some point the world of darkness is going to be completely filled with piskies and nothing else, and we have a different problem than I think they intended, <laughs> you know? Here's the thing. I don't need this to be explained. I just need it to be acknowledged as an unexplained thing. I need it to be something that other changelings go, the fuck you say? The other thing that's weird, piskies were definitely added at the end. I would say they got a solid dev and copy editing pass. It's definitely cleaner writing than the history section, but they were also very clearly added after the beta once things changed over. And I went back and I looked at the she write-up and the whole section about 
she and the changeling way and no one knows what happened to those human bodies and people thought they went back to arcadia that is all still there it is unchanged from the beta if you're gonna introduce something like the piskies something that fundamentally alters the cosmology of the game maybe go through and really introduce them from beginning to end and they definitely did not do that (laughs) i don't hate this thought experiment but it needed like two more dev passes trying to tie this all together so we can stop complaining about the piskies the piskies role in things is that they're i don't know how to say this in a nice way they're fetches from lost and they exist to antagonize the changeling who kicked them out of their body the nice piskies realize we're all in this together and if i kill the person who replaced me i die too for reasons like they give a reason i don't find it very interesting so they just end up pranking them constantly getting back to changing puka like this this is a perfect setup for bad player behavior and then you have the unseely piskies who play nasty pranks on the people who stole their bodies which the thing i just said times two and then apparently there are no shadow court piskies but they just exist to torment somebody else in the game i don't really understand what purpose this serves because like in lost the fetch was actually kind of an interesting idea it introduced questions into the story you have this thing that you know is a thing that has taken your place and is getting all the things and all the the love and affection that you deserve and you are denied but everyone around it thinks it's a real person and it thinks it's a real person is it a real person is it a part of you the game systems actually penalize you for breaking your fetch and they reward you for integrating your fetch so there's this really interesting narrative created there and i'm talking about how much i like a part of lost right now which is weird but none of that exists in pisky i'm really just of the opinion that if you're going to steal something from somewhere you need to do at least as good a job as they did originally and i don't think they did the other weird thing and this is probably throwaway this is probably just fulfilling a template and i'm i'm nitpicking but I did go back and look at the NPCs to see what's represented in the NPC section, and they have a small write-up on the Thalane. It's a very brief. Storytellers are basically do what you need with it. But they go through and they list the Thalane that correspond to the various different groups. They list Spriggans for Piskies. That's one of those things where I stopped and I stared at it, and I went, okay... The Spriggans, as they were originally written up, are Sackmen, which does kind of line up with the mythology. In the mythology, Piskies and Spriggans both kidnapped children. Piskies would kidnap children and run off to ferry with them, and they'd have a glorious time, and then the children would come back a week later, unchanged, fed and happy, and tell wondrous stories about their time with the fairies and when spriggans captured children if they came back which they didn't always there they were terrorized and it had a horrible experience but they were very much mirrors of each other they left the spriggans as the sackmen in c20 and changed the piskies into weird morphing identityless things 
okay, I don't love the C20 Pisky write-up. I'm, I'm not even going to pretend. But I don't hate it either. It's just kind of there. And we've deviated from this whole thing where they're mirrors of each other. But then you move forward into this write-up, and the Spriggans are still mentioned. And I'm just like, okay. There's no space to acknowledge the what is the cast-out human become fairy version for the Thalane. Like, is that what the Spriggans are? What are the Spriggans? Are they still sack men? What? Yeah, and Pissy <laughs> had a couple of nods to their original story. Like, they were so passing that, like, I barely noticed them. But they had some nods to, you know, Piskies are very defensive about humans, especially children, because of how shoddily they were treated by the Fae. And I feel like that was maybe trying to placate people like me who hate change. I, I appreciate that. I don't know if it worked, but maybe there was a bigger plan at some point for Spriggans and Piskies to go together, and like this was their way of like starting to thread that needle early, and the notes got lost. I, it's hard to say. It is. I mean, I will say I'm I'm not so much change averse. I don't hate this thought experiment. I think if they'd finished it, I'd probably like it. I want the recursive loop closed and I, in a narratively interesting way. You know, if you're going to mention the Spriggans after this kind of redesign, give me something to do with it. Give me, like, a quote in the book that talks about what happens to human souls that are kicked out and become fey when they're kicked out by nightmares, or the types of human souls that the Thalane were attracted to. It, it can be one flavor quote. It can be something. It doesn't, I'm not expecting a whole write-up. I know the word counts limited, but man, I need something there. And if it had been, you know, limited only to the body snatching, if there had been something to contain it a little bit, I think I would have liked that. It was just, there were so many times where my brain went, there's a huge empty space here and you need to fill it in before you keep reading. It was really the only place in this book I had that experience. I mean, there were places where I didn't, you know, I didn't love a creative choice or I'm like, oh, this needed a copy editing pass. This was the one part of the book where just like my brain went, this isn't finished. Finish it for them or read something else. Now that we're done picking on the Piskies, one of the other kiths that got a significant rewrite were the Clericans and... I, I think this might be one of the ones we disagree on, actually, because <laughs> I read them and I went, oh, okay, they're leprechauns. Not much to see here. How did you feel, Victor? You're not wrong about, oh, okay, they're leprechauns. I really appreciate them because the game has never actually had leprechauns before. The game took like 80% of the leprechaun myth and shoved it into Boggin, and the remaining 20% of the Leprechaun myth, which is really what the Clurican are capturing, doesn't exist. The Clurican's pitch is, we are wheelers and dealers. So instead of the part of the Leprechaun myth that is, oh hey, I'm good to the little people, and I'm a cobbler on hard times, and I woke up, and look, here are 200 pairs of shoes that I didn't make, and now I will be able to sell enough to keep my house— Instead of it just being that story, which that's very much what the Boggins are, the Clurican are more Rumpelstiltskin. 
Like, yeah, I can, I can make you a thing. I can do a thing. Let's wheel. Let's deal. Let's let's make an agreement. I want your firstborn. And because I'm a fairy, I have to give you some way to navigate this that I don't think you ever could. That's never really been in Changeling. The she were great at contracts, but the she were always kind of the high oaths take on contracts. The commoner wheeling and dealing model was missing. They wrote the Clerican up that way. And in terms of their court breakdown, the Seely Clerican are more just kind of like the keepers of agreements, and they're more likely to be fair. I mean, they're going to try and end up on a good end of an oath, but they're not there just to screw you over, whereas the Unseely Clerican are absolutely going to try and twist a ridiculous oath that is going to screw you over, and the Shadow Court Clerican are just there to, you know, rip your baby away. But I'm okay with that. I don't know that there's anything that from a mythological standpoint is super groundbreaking here, but I feel like they actually really did fill in a very missing place in Changeling. And they did something interesting with the Kith where just like the Red Sweeney ripoff is entertaining in sessions, but it is not that narratively engaging. And super duper drunken leprechaun is a problem and I don't want to run it as a Kith. Of all the cleric and write-ups I've seen, I like this one the most by quite a bit, honestly. So I will say about the C20 cleric, they're entertaining. They end up with fun characters. As a game design write-up, they're actually not bad as a character class. I just don't find them to be a very dynamic concept beyond that. Like, I can picture the societies of uh, trolls or knockers. The Clorican are just such a... Like, it got rid of one terrible Irish stereotype for another one. The brawling, angry Irishman is another kind of terrible Irish stereotype. It's fun to play. I guess I just want more than fun to play for one of the mainline Kith. I would be fine with the Mad Sweeney ripoff as one of, like, the not-quite-Galane in the back of the book. But man, if you're going to make them front and center in fairy society, I need to actually be able to picture them in a place in that society. And I was never able to do that with the C20 Clerican. These Clerican, like, fit a role with myriad manifestations. So you bring up being able to see them in society... And that's one thing I realize we haven't talked about too much so far is the the secret societies. And I'm going to pick on Clerican because I didn't like their secret societies very much. What do you do with those? Like your choices for Clerican are a messenger, which doesn't fit their core theme. The devil you summon to get something, which I guess fits their new theme, but it's not super interesting from a player perspective. And the Make-A-Wish Foundation, but it's the Shadow Court, so I guess they're evil. Like, what do you do with those? So I have to admit, I have a weird relationship with the secret societies for the Kiths. And I have a weird relationship with them because I've played just enough LARP and talked with enough LARP players about what they're doing with their characters to kind of get what these do. The way I read these and the way I've seen these sorts of dynamics play out in LARP settings is players want to be part of something. They want to have an organization that, you know, it talks about it in this book a little bit earlier, the economy of cool is a whole thing in LARP. 
what's the special thing for me, and especially in league games where, okay, I live in Chicago, and I'm going to be traveling down to Texas, and the Mind's Eye Society has a changeling game in Chicago and in Texas, and I can take my character there and just walk up the day of the game and be like, here's my registered character, go check the database. Cool, you can see I'm legit. I'm going to play in this game as a traveling character. And being able to walk in and say, I'm a member of this society. Is anyone else here a member of this society? Yes, boom, I'm part of the story. And the thing about LARP is you make your own story a lot of the time. One storyteller to like 20, 30 characters, which sometimes that ratio is a reality. The storyteller is not going to feed you plot the way you get in tabletop. These are kind of about creating those hooks. And inevitably, whenever you have all these myriad groups in a LARP setting, whatever's written doesn't matter. What matters is what is that society represented in this game for the last year? for the like seven or eight people who have walked through it probably not all in that side at the same time but like over time it's grown and the mantle's been handed down and the fact that i got to do this transition and that story was totally made by other players like that history becomes all that kind of matters so i looked over very roughly what the secret societies were you're totally right about the messengers that should be an issue i have no idea why that's here they weren't all great, but I also kind of see them as proxy placeholders for all of those dynamics I just described. So I don't think I looked at them with that critical an eye. Maybe that's maybe that's a little lazy on my part. Although the one that just really kills me with Clerican is the the last resort, like because it's it's the Shadow Court group, and the Shadow Court are very clearly the bad guys, and. And like it sounds great up until like the last sentence where they're like and everything ends terribly and it's like what yeah what happened yeah that is that is weird these are not all great write-ups i have to admit the other thing that's interesting is the secret societies have different names with each kith so with the cleric and their camps i think they are secret societies with one group it's a little weird on a structural level, I like that the commoners get their own societies and that they're not part of the noble houses. I dig that. I think Changeling has had a little bit of that over its history, but not all that consistently. I'd like to see some cross-commoner groups like this. The fact that they're entirely captured within kiths is a little limiting, but it's better than banner houses. I'm just going to say it. And the half of our listenership that wants to kill me now can come find me. It's fine. I'll forgive you. Um, <laughs> they won't be able to kill you if you reform the Urban Renewal League, which is what you're really angling for here. Yeah, that's what I really want. <laughs> I've just said a lot of very nice things about the Clerican. That was a palate cleanser because there were about four paragraphs of the issue write up that kind of made me crazy. I do want to talk about them a little bit before we kind of move past the kith. There are about four paragraphs that more or less say, traveling's expensive, y'all, and the issue just can't afford it, so banality takes them. I mean, I'm really like, I'm paraphrasing, but not really, that's kind of four paragraphs of that. And I, I read it, 
it was just such a wasted opportunity because they basically talk about how traveling takes, you know, so many finances. And so the issue sort of settle into a court and then maybe get to know the areas around the court and then banality takes them because they're a dream of travel and they can't travel. And whoever wrote this has never had a friend who was a flight attendant or roused about for a circus or part of a traveling Broadway show or, or took a bus or took a bus or hitchhiked or they weren't part of that particular part of gay culture where you know all those pretty young boys who make friends with much more wealthy gay men because you're going to take me places for a while. And oh my God, I've known so many people like that. So many people like that. And I'm not saying that is like a shady, judgy thing. That's just like, they were open about, this is kind of the relationship and that's cool. And everyone's getting what they want. And I'm going to travel the world on a dime and I'm going to jump between relationships. And, you know, I know so many people that have lived some version of the economy of travel, not the travel of the economy. Yeah, plane tickets are expensive, but there are so many ways to build it in so you don't have to pay that price. All of those ways involve not being connected to other people that don't live that way. You can't live that life and want to spend your life with someone else who actually wants to live a normal life. There is a trade-off there. That would have been really interesting to get into that dynamic with the issue. And on one hand, I get it. We need to write a reason for a character who lives in Chicago and wants to come to game every month to write an issue because that's what they want to play and justify being there every month. And I think that's what this was. But yeah, that's just not how the world works. It's It was very strange. That didn't strike me as much as it struck you. But as you were talking about it, I was, I was thinking about the things you were saying and I was just like, oh yeah, I guess I have hitchhiked. I guess that's unusual. But if we're talking about the issue, we do need to talk about their shadow court write-up. Because there's a thing there, and it's not a good thing. They're the only kith that I think either was noticed, and maybe we missed it somewhere, but they're the only kith that any part of their write-up involves the phrase ritual sacrifices. And for the historically ethnic kith to be the only one that the Shadow Court write-up, which are the bad guys, but to have the only Shadow Court write-up that involves ritual sacrifice isn't a great look. The Shadow Court write-up for the issue also really stands out to me compared to the other Shadow Court write-ups as being very high fantasy sounding. Like a lot of them, like the Clurican, it's like, yeah, I'm going to screw you over with this deal and it's going to be hardcore and I cannot be trusted and I'm out for myself. But it was still just like, oh, this is a metaphor for the horrible people and the things they do, and most of the other kids' Shadow Court write-ups kind of fall into that. I mean, we joked, and I think the first episode around the Alpha, that like, oh, King Male gives Trump icy. There's like this kind of metaphorical stand-in feeling for most of them. The Shadow Court write-up for the issue is like, they swirl in, and devastation is seen by everyone, and you just pray that their passions take them elsewhere. And... That's a far cry from the other kids' Shadow Court write-up. I mean, it's yeah, that's kind of grandiose. Yeah, and again, for being 
the ethnic kith, which I wish we'd just get rid of that, it's not a great look. That's really most of what we have to say about the kith. There are definitely some high points, and for the kith that were mostly unchanged, coming in and pulling like their secret societies or some of the other inspiration because they have slightly longer write-ups. I, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there, but we've definitely gotten into some of the stuff that irked us as well. In terms of the rest of the book, once you get past the kith, there's a lot more LARP. There's a lot more of the arts and the realms and the magic systems and combat. And we didn't get into the LARP stuff so much. I did look over the arts for their flavor the arts of their flavor were really solid. They developed a lot of powers and a few arts that I think are new or just a slightly different take on some things. And I thought they were really well put together. The thing that stood out to me once you get into the later parts of the book that I think is the most useful is the freehold section. They get into the structure of a freehold. And this is because it's a LARP and you need to give people roles in their setting in a LARP in a way you don't normally need to do in tabletop, but you get the warden, you get not just the freeholder, but you get the person who's responsible for throwing the parties and the jester and the bard and all these roles that are there so players can get their piece of that economy of cool. But I was also thinking a lot about the campaign that I am finishing up right now. I went through a few different freeholds in a few different cities and I had to make up positions, which I didn't mind doing. It's fine. Most of the stuff in tabletop about freeholds focuses on a few key figures, like the freeholder or lord, their second in command that can run things when they disappear, and then question mark, because it is all about the mechanics of the freehold. It's not about building the society. I kind of like that this book gives you the artifacts necessary to come in read about what the court would look like, what is the court actually made up of, and give you that jump start if you're just trying to put together your sessions quickly. Simon and I have talked a lot about the fact that we love creating every little thing from scratch. We're like those particular types of storytellers, but truth be told, that's tough for a lot of people, especially if you're just running for the first or second time. And I realized reading this that it's a tool set that tabletop kind of lacks, and I'm glad it's here. I'd sort of love to see a more tabletop-focused version of it at some point. And that section is still like a third crunch because those roles have specific LARP dynamics, but I still think even just reading the fluff there is kind of worthwhile for a tabletop game. Yeah, that kind of gets into a place that's awkward in Dreaming. In Dreaming, house and court mean specific things that don't really have anything to do with place and hierarchy and that's all they really are in the real world even today you go to a court and there's a judge there are lawyers there's a defender there's a prosecutor there's a bailiff there are all these people with specific roles and in changeling Court refers to, at best, like whether you are a creative or a destructive force, and at worst, whether you're good or bad. I both wish for and dread C5, because this is one of those things, there's so much potential in fixing, and there's so much potential to make worse. 
According Changeling can in theory be a place. Queen Mab holds a court. She has a freehold. The problem is those things were never really developed. Like there's a whole book on Elysium. There's not really a book on Changeling court society. There are two books on freeholds, kind of like on chantries or cairns, but those freehold books focused so much on the place that they kind of didn't pay a lot of attention to the people. I don't know that that's really a criticism. I don't know that I want the book that dives into fairy society to be the book about building the actual artifact that is the freehold, but I wish that the fairy society book existed as well. And when I think about the stuff throughout the line that deals with that, it's like the whole write-up at the beginning of the C20 Player's Guide about the Parliament of Dreams and the Shadow Court and Banner Houses. And that stuff's useful on a macro scale, but none of it's all that useful on a local scale. And Changeling, I think, has been very macro while kind of acknowledging that it needs to be micro. Like, it'll have the write-ups on individual kingdoms and regions, but because they're in a bigger book, they're too short to be useful. Kingdom of Willows kind of was a format where they could have done that, but when I think back, I don't think it really got that much into what is court actually like day-to-day in Maelg's court. We know it exists, but like, what is it? Whereas in a LARP, you have to define that. That's the whole setting. So you have to define it, and I think that's why it made its way into this book. I just, I think it has a place in tabletop as well. So I think it's nice that it exists. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a book that has like a really... Granular isn't quite the right word because I I don't quite mean that, but I can't think of a better word. A really detailed like breakdown of what responsibilities in a freehold or a court look like. The new freehold book kind of did that, and the old freehold book was just all examples, but none of them were that, if I remember right. It's a hard place to go, I guess, because you've got, on the one hand, the Fae, who are kind of opposed to the systems of hierarchy that are necessary to run something in a modern context, because unless you're a very specific changeling, doing the taxes is boring. But on the other hand, the writers are actually very awkward and afraid of using the feudalism structure I don't know. I, I think it's just a place where, like, Changeling might be, you know, structurally set up to fail in a lot of ways. <laughs> so it's nice that it's here in this book. You know, it, it's hard when you're doing a critique not to dive into the things that rubbed you the wrong way. They're what stand out. And that's why I really I really did want to bring this up, that I think it's cool that it's in here. And I liked the write-ups, especially, you know, I saw they had Bard and Jester, and I'm like, oh, those are going to be, those are not the same things. They're like, they feel unique. And I remember I very briefly held a position in, like, a vampire LARP I had. I was in in high school or maybe early, early college. I was the harpy. It was very briefly in college. I was the harpy. I was playing as a Mishi anti-tribute who was, you know, pretending to be a Toreador. Played the part well enough that I got a position. And I didn't do a ton day-to-day, but it was a very immediate hook for story and to have a reason to approach people, and to have a reason for people to approach me. And 
so that's very much I recognize the structure they're recreating. It's just interesting. It's like walking into a store and finding that thing I never knew I needed. As much mm -hmm. as I used to work in retail and I hated that phrase because it's a lie, that's kind of how I felt reading this. Thinking about the games I've run, I've done more than a few games where society was organized around a soccer game, <laughs> like the players in a soccer game, their positions. <laughs> so I, I don't know. Yeah. It's, a, it's definitely a hole in the game. <laughs> well, but like even that, you know, this write-up could never be that because it's trying to create a, a systematic thing you could use in a LARP. But like speaking to what would a tabletop version of this look like, I would love to see a tabletop version that gave you a structure and then said, okay, here's what a court court looks like, but here's what, you know, a Cub Scout troop that is actually a child or court, like here's how it plays out and how it relates to the Cub Scouts or how it relates to your soccer team that's entirely, you know, peopled by changelings. That would be great. Oh, it was a fantasy so football league. Wait, what? It was a fantasy football league. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll just let that hang in the air. <laughs> it was just... It, it was the perfect metaphor for that one. Um, but yeah, like, that's, that's also kind of the problem with doing that sort of a thing with Changeling, because then you end up with, like, you have this structure in the book... And then what do you do with the Fantasy Football League freehold, or the Cub Scout freehold, or the Knitting Circle freehold? You end up creating a thing that makes it easier for some players and harder for other players. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's always the risk to putting structure on something. I guess as long as it's loose and suggestive as opposed to prescriptive... I'd still like to see someone take a stab at it. I'd hate to see it put in a core book, though. I would want it put somewhere that's like, on the fringe, pick this up if you want, totally ignore it otherwise, which I know isn't so much the, like, fifth edition design ethos, but I think Changeling especially benefits from that a little bit. So at the end of the day, <laughs> do you recommend picking up this book? I should say, who do I recommend picking this book up to? If you storytell Changeling, pick this book up. You know, read through the flavor sections. There are definitely things in here that are cool and you could pull in. And, you know, with C20 basically being done, having the extra content is worth it. And a lot of it is really well written. If you have a new player and they want to know what's the history of these changelings, you know, just print out the history section and give it to them. It's so worth it. I love the art. I love the layout. There are obviously a few things in it we didn't care for. It's in good company. All Changeling books kind of fall into that category. But there's a lot of stuff I like. And for all of our kind of ripping on the, the Shadow Court write-ups in some of the kits sections, I like the Shadow Court pitch overall. I like the we've been hoarding glamour waiting for this moment. We were ready for it. We gave up on trying to stop it and just tried to survive it. And now that it's here, we're prepared and no one else is deal with it that puts the emphasis of the horror soundly in the human aspect of being a changeling while still making it part of being changeling and i really like that because i'm not here for fomorian horrors from beyond space and time i'm sorry i am here for the human aspect filtered through the narrative of fairy and i think this book nails that better than anything else i've seen in the line yeah, the one thing I wish this book had, or, like, if anybody out there is listening, like, 
you should really put out the character art as its own thing that like people can buy because I would totally like use this stuff. Be like, here's this NPC. I am terrible at doing descriptions, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I would love to see that. I have no idea if it's possible because, again, with this being an ST Vault project from beginning to end, who knows what the licensing is like on this art. But, man, if that is possible, that would be fantastic. Well, those were our extremely rambling thoughts on the By Night Studios Changeling the Dreaming LARP Storyteller Vault product. If you're interested, we'll have a link in the Podbean description to the Storyteller Vault where you can pick it up. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Walking Towards Consumerism.